1: Is evil born or made? Will good people turn on their fellow man in the right circumstances? One elite university professor set out to prove his hypothesis. But to what lengths was he willing to go to prove his theory? Corruption? Abuse? Torture? This week's episode is The Stanford Prison Experiment. Up in the night, your heart fills with dread.
3: I have a question, please, completely unrelated to anything we 're discussing what 's my favorite kind of question. What is the timeline for when you stop turning on your Christmas lights?
1: Oh, like outside? Is yeah. It, it's bad enough that you haven't removed them. <laughs> on my way over here, there were still... several
3: homes with full on Christmas lights Christy, still going on. I live in a festive neighborhood. Please it don't. Judge neighborhood. Us. It wasn't your neighborhood. It wasn't your neighborhood. Some of my people in my neighborhood have them too. I did see
1: a friend from high school post on Instagram and she was playing with her baby and the tree was lit up behind her and she said, playing with whatever. The baby's name is. Yep, it's still Christmas at our house, and so again, she hasn't taken down the Christmas tree and is still lighting it. You know what? <laughs> so, t- well, I mean,
3: if it's up, you might as well turn it on. I guess that's true. Man, I I love Christmas, but also it stresses me out to put all the decorations up because you got to put all the your normal decorations somewhere. To make room for the Christmas decorations. So it's like double duty. Yeah. And then you have all this shit. I don't know. Just, you should do like me and just
1: move in the middle of Christmas so I never put any ornaments on my you, tree. No, that's not true. I put you the, had one ornament. One single unicorn ornament. Made by he,
3: yours, yours truly. Took forever. And <laughs> I appreciated it and I cherished it. Well, I appreciated that I was the sole ornament on your
1: tree. Well, yeah, absolutely. But I don't know. I guess it's a... Uh, I always think of the song "Redneck Woman" by Gretchen Wilson, where she says, "I leave my Christmas lights up on the front porch
3: all year long." Hey, but does she turn them on? Because people she will doesn't just leave she them doesn't elaborate. She okay, doesn't <laughs> elaborate let us song. know what your opinion is if you because I was I was thinking. Well, okay, Christmas was December twenty fifth. Maybe the cutoff is a month. So if that's the case, we've still got ten days. You still got ten. De- you still in, have time until Shop now <laughs> until they it's it's shut off time. Anyway, it's just just something I was pondering on the way over here. Something that you noticed. Yeah. Well, something
1: I noticed as I was doing research for this is maybe um, science is not for the stubborn. Science is not for the stubborn. (laughs) Yes. There's a... A theory you have or a hypothesis you have, and then you go through some tests, and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. Who's to say, oh, I don't know, the scientific results? And if it's not what you thought it was, cool, man, you just did science and learned. But if it doesn't come out how you wanted it to, maybe don't manipulate
3: the study. Well, it's just like we talk about in any case that has evidence where you pick the the perpetrator before you've examined the evidence and then you cherry pick the evidence to like shoehorn that in. yes to make that perpetrator the more likely suspect which isn't again morally right or or scientifically right uh, that's
1: what's been happening on Netflix's an innocent man
3: shout out oh, to oh i have I've, I've watched like 30 minutes of the first episode well, but i'm into it it is it's pretty rough. I was gonna say, shout out to Wes Davis for telling me to watch it
1: in the green room before the show. I subbed in, and oh my goodness, I'm obsessed with it and cannot it's turn pretty, it off. It's as pretty soon upsetting. as you leave, I'm gonna go turn it back on. Please, it's perfect. Please uh, laying up on the
3: couch, injured, watching. Yeah, our sweet Heather got into a motorcycle accident. I
1: had a little spill. I don't like to say I had a uh, fell off or had an accident. I like to say I did a sweet power slide on my Harley, which sounds <laughs> very intentional and very cool.
3: And she cracked some ribs in her wrist in the process. You know, but she is still a trooper and she is still here tonight to exactly. record. Exactly.
1: Broken ribs or not I will uh, deliver this very huge trove of information we yeah. have on this kind of a weird thing that I think has been
3: used oh, to it's, it's, justify a lot of injustices. It's one of the most popular psychology experiments to date that's it's ever every, been done. Every psychology book. Did you learn about this in college? Mm-hmm. I did. I was a psychology major. That's what I'm saying, I but it was in your book, this. and y'all talked about it? Uh-huh. And Dr. Zimbardo, by some, is considered the most prolific psychologist of our time.
1: Well, if you watch a, his TED Talk, you'll realize he's kind of a dipshit. He also <laughs> breathes really heavily, and I'm sorry if he has some sort of medical condition. I don't mean to mock it. I mostly think he was just
3: very excited. Yeah, he probably was. And we'll get to hear... Heather's take on him in just a bit. <laughs> the hours of Zimbardo audio I listened to to perfect my impersonation. <laughs> well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And today we are discussing the Stanford Prison Experiment. So let's get into this. What was the Stanford Prison Experiment? In 1971, psychology professor Dr. Philip Zimbardo conducted a social psychology experiment designed to investigate the psychological effects of perceived power. I don't
1: know how he had time to do an experiment when he was busy creating the Sir Church of Satan. He looks exactly like <laughs> Anton LaVey. So, if you haven't seen him, he's got a thin face and a dark goatee. He does, and yeah. And cartoonishly large eyebrows. Yes, he looks like a... Anton LaVey.
3: Is that is that Aladdin?
1: He looks like Jafar.
3: Yeah, he looks like Jafar and Aladdin. <laughs> he kind of does. Well, it was designed to investigate the psychological effects of perceived power, specifically between prisoners and prison guards. Zimbardo designed the experiment to include disorientation, depersonalization, and deindividualization and was quoted as saying, "We wanted to
1: see what the psychological effects were of becoming a prisoner or a prison guard. To do this, we decided to set up a simulated prison and then carefully note the effects of this institution on the behavior of those within its walls."
3: Interested college students answered a local newspaper ad seeking volunteers for a study of the psychological effects of worker life that would last two weeks. That's a little misleading. Mm-hmm. False advertising. Seventy applicants answered and were given diagnostic interviews and personality tests. Applicants with psychological problems, medical disabilities, or a history of crime or drug abuse were not considered. In the end... 24 applicants from the US and Canada were selected. We wanted to get an average uh, boy, just an average <laughs> yeah, so college we got a boy. we got a Stanford educated white male, you know, <laughs> the type that are really flooding our prisons. To,
1: <laughs> to be fair, they are the type that are inflicting violence on people in prisons, statistically speaking. Statistically
3: they are not the prisoners though. Oh, that is accurate as we well. We could have we should have uh, been a little more accurate in that uh, that data. Wider swath of the population. Mhm. All of the participants were male, middle class, educated, and predominantly white. There was one Asian American. All the other were white dudes. He also discusses in the book the Lucifer
1: effect, uh, which is what I've learned. Spoiler alert. He did this whole thing because he has this theory that that we'll get into, but he's packaged it now as what he calls the Lucifer effect, which Lucifer is the fallen angel that created hell. And he wants to shoehorn this theory into this so he can sell books. I think. Ultimately, oh yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, however, in it's so I this book I I read and it's what I'm learning is people who write books about themselves. John Ramsey, David Thibodeau from Waco. This guy, I just don't understand how they, their arms don't fall off from well, jerking themselves off because
3: they, <laughs> they're very biased. I also. mean, it's just it's so, not going to be an unbiased account of what happened. No,
1: but it's helpful to compare the documented evidence that we've seen against what he claims yes. uh, happened. And in the book, just to bring it back to the the participants, he discusses their height variation, and that the smallest one was five foot two, and the tallest one was six foot one. And he's trying he's trying to say the gods that were the tallest ones were the ones that were the toughest, except for like two or three of them who weren't tall and were also very tough. I'm like, you can't just say I can't have both. <laughs> yes. They
3: can't those both those things can't be true. Exactly. Also, well, that's interesting because on his website. Zimbardo says that the prisoners thought the guards were chosen because they were bigger than the prisoners. But in reality, he says the average height of the two groups were the same. So he's con- he's completely contradicting himself. Yeah, That's not how they chose wasn't based on height. He's silly. And also he'll say things
1: in interviews and then someone will show him evidence and he tries to gaslight the interviewer. And he says, that's not accurate at all. And the interviewer says, well, we have a recording <laughs> of you saying that. And he says, sir, we beg to
3: differ. Well, we don't. I don't remember that. So, the participants made $15 per day, which would be the equivalent of $94 per day in 2018. So, it wasn't peanuts. Dude, 100 bucks a day to what when they thought. Colli- when you're a college when kid? When you're a
1: college kid, and you, they, the one guy's like, I had to study for the GRE. I can't wait to just sit around and study mm-hmm. all day.
3: The 24 men were arbitrarily divided into two groups by flipping a coin. Half of them became prisoners and half became guards. Well, that's... A pretty uh, it makes me think of the office it's a pretty good way to decide things when they put beans on everyone's faces to decide who gets a raise (laughs) i think that's probably the most honest way to determine though who was going to get what because if not it would have been based on something else looks or grades yeah something like that wasn't a controlled variable on august 14th 1971 the experiment was officially underway The applicants that had been designated prisoners were picked up in a surprise mass arrest by officers from the Palo Alto Police Department on fake charges such as armed robbery and burglary. This was fun because... One of them's little brother saw him
1: get arrested. Yeah. One of them's mom saw him get arrested. And another one, they knocked on the door and it was the guy and his girlfriend were smoking pot. And the guy says, they can't, you know, they, it's, they can't arrest us. I know my rights. I know my rights. And he opens the door and he starts getting arrested. And the woman's like, we'll return the signs we stole. We're so sorry. <laughs> and he said he heard the church bells. And then he realized, oh, it's Sunday. The, the experiment oh, started. This is when I'm supposed said, to be." Don't
3: worry. It's all fake. It's fine. I'll be out soon. The young men were treated like actual suspects being placed under arrest. They were put up against the cruiser and searched, handcuffed, placed in the back of the car, and taken to the Palo Alto police station. The suspects were then taken to a holding cell, blindfolded, and left alone to think about what had just happened. Well, this is dumb because that wouldn't happen to you if you were actually—they don't blindfold you in a holding cell. again— Techniques were already being used in the experiment to try and intimidate and dehumanize the applicants. So
1: you're tainting the pool
3: already? Yes, in my opinion. Oh, I mean, I think so. After the holding cell, prisoners were then taken to the Stanford County Jail. With the help of former convicts and correctional personnel, Zimbardo and his research assistants had set up a simulated prison in the basement of Stanford's psychology department building. A corridor was boarded up on either end that became known as the Yard. This was the only area outside the prison area where prisoners were allowed to walk, eat, exercise, or go to the bathroom. However, when they did go to the bathroom, prisoners were blindfolded so they didn't know the way out of the prison. Did you see the 2015 movie,
1: The Stanford Prison Experiments? I did. It's
3: actually pretty good.
1: Billy Crudup is very good in it. I thought all of the
3: actors were really good. The guy that
1: plays Credence from... Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them is the lead prisoner pretty much that they follow the most. He was very good. My favorite part of the movie, I will say, is when Zimbardo is down in the prison area and one of his colleagues shows up because they used professor offices as the jail cells because the professors were away for the summer and one of the colleagues shows up to get a book and comes down and just looks at Zimbardo and says, what is this? Uh, I need to get in there, buddy. He's like, I just came to get these books and Zimbardo says, well, we're doing an experiment and we made it into a jail and the other professor just sort of stares at him and says, okay, good luck with that. Guess I'll catch that book later. let anyone defecate in a bucket in my office. Oh,
3: I see what you've done here. The prison cells were made by removing the doors to some of the laboratory rooms in the basement and replaced with specially made doors with steel bars and cell numbers. I
1: spent a lot of money on this.
3: Yeah. To allow for Zimbardo to constantly monitor the participant's behavior 24 hours a day, a video camera had been installed in one of the boards at the end of the corridor. An intercom system was also used to secretly listen to and monitor discussions in the cells and make announcements to the prisoners. The makeshift prison also had no windows or clocks, which later resulted in some time-distorting experiences. Sounds like a Las Vegas casino. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a reason they do that. You don't know what time it is. No, and they want to bend your perception of reality, so you... I've
1: only been here a few minutes. Oh, God, it's Thursday. Exactly,
3: and they pump oxygen into casinos, and they have lighting where you think it's daylight outside, even though it might be 3 in the morning. Damn. Mm Mm-hmm. I've been tricked. The psychology of how casinos is set up is pretty fascinating if you look into it.
1: Do you think the people that are psychologists for casinos or the ones that work for grocery stores to make people buy more stuff? Do you think they feel guilty about their jobs?
3: Um, no. That they're manipulating no, the I public. Don't. <laughs> they, got, they get paid very well. I think that I think they are simply producing information to help their clients what their clients do with that is up to their clients what an interesting take on ethics so they might say the color orange is statistically shown to increase hunger in people then if mcdonald's decides to have their logo be orange that's up to mcdonald's interesting also that is a true fact you let orange and yellow and red make people statistically hungrier give me those burgers that's why most fast food places are those in and out Mm -hmm. sonic Mm -hmm. mcdonald's Mm
1: -hmm. Burger all, King. All the good ones. All oh, the good God. ones. Taco Bell's purple, though, so I think that just attracts people mm, to That's because high. it's royalty.
3: <laughs> it's upper echelon. <laughs> one by one, the prisoners were taken into the jail and greeted by the warden, played by David Jaffe, an undergrad research assistant from Stanford. Jaffe explained to them their offenses and that they were now prisoners. They were searched, stripped naked, and deloused with a spray. Again, all of this was done with the intent to break them down and humiliate them. For our listeners and ourselves, I think we
1: should pay attention to things as they unfold and try to find exactly where the line is
3: crossed. Is it right here when they strip them naked? And that's interesting because if you're in this experiment, you're probably already starting to think, well, this is this doesn't feel right or done, but you've been, you've signed up to do a psychology experiment with a professor and a doctor. And that alone makes you feel like this is valid. And that this person obviously knows what he's doing. It's the same thing. If you go to a medical doctor and you're diagnosed with something, you're going to believe it because they are, they're considered to be a person that's an expert in their field that went to school for these things. So, or a police officer, with the Golden State Killer, that was one reason he was successful. He was a security guard going around. He had a position of power and authority that he abused, and therefore people trusted him.
1: That's true. It's uh, the perception of authority, whether or not it's uh, at, you know actual authority versus just what people perceive. Exactly. People only know as much as you let on.
3: All prisoners were then issued a uniform that was simply a smock and were told they were not allowed to wear anything underneath. The point of this was to emasculate the men. Each smock had the prisoner's unique identification number on the front. Prisoners were only allowed to refer to themselves and others by their numbers in an attempt to make them feel anonymous. That's a very cult-like thing to do. Oh, yeah. Take away someone's individuality and and just create a new identity for them. The big thing that he presses is de-individualization as a means to
1: inflicting evil upon others, but also de-individualization as to make it easier to inflict upon others Because he talks about in the book The Lucifer effect Other scenarios where something like this has happened Like the Salem witch trials Or the Hutus and the Tutsi um, Or even the Holocaust A lot Holocaust. of people compare this type of thing to the Holocaust Correct and then the Hutu and Tutsi They would call the other side Oh they're cockroaches they have to be exterminated So instead of saying this is a person named Deborah And she has a family right. It's like it's just one of those
3: them That we sure, need to so get why rid of You don't name your pets if you're going to eat them
1: Good Lord.
3: <laughs> this was on an episode of Survivor recently. Okay. They always get chickens as a reward. Comes and one back of the around. girls, a vegetarian, wanted to name all the chickens and she took care of them. And the guy said, you know, we're going to kill them. Don't name them and don't care get for them. Attached. It's just going to make, don't get attached to them. On the other hand, it's the opposite effect. Like when a kid goes missing or even an adult goes missing, they will make sure that they, Show them as individuals and humans on newscasts and repeat their name over and over and their interest and how old they are. Rebecca
1: loves ballet and Mm -hmm. her
3: her bicycle. To try to make them seem more human to their whoever. The murderer. Or the kidnapper. Mm -hmm, Exactly. The prisoners had to wear rubber sandals and a heavy chain around their right ankle that remained bolted at all times, even when they slept, to remind them of the oppressiveness of their environment. In lieu of having their head shaved, their hair had to be covered with a stocking cap made from pantyhose. Yeah, so I, at least they didn't shave their head. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, when I first watched the movie, I was I was paying attention. But still, I looked and I thought, why the hell are they putting a the pantyhose on that guy's head? But it's to remove the hair, which is a symbol of individuality. I'm kind of surprised they didn't shave
3: their head. And this dude was extreme. With all of this other stuff that we'll we find out the goes shit on. The gets worse. That, that would have been the like least. like one of the... I mean, it does take a, maybe a while to grow back, but also dudes don't care as much, usually, if their maybe the are They're in their 70s, shaved. man. They want to be freaking... Oh, small. that's true. They're Everybody all looked like porn stars. Long-haired hippies. They were... In total, there were nine prisoners and three substitute prisoners. There were three cells and three prisoners to each cell. All of the prisoners signed a consent agreement and knew there would be some harassment, violation of privacy in their civil rights, and minimal food.
1: Can I just briefly say... The consent, so this is a whole question because later on, some of the participants said they wanted to sue for false imprisonment. The actual consent form just says The nature of the research project has been fully explained to me, including without limitation the fact that paid volunteers will be assigned either prisoners or guards for the duration. I understand this will involve a loss of privacy that I will be expected to participate the full duration, that I'll only be released for reasons of health, yada, yada. None of this at all says I may be subjected to torture.
3: Well, in the very first sentence, the nature of this research project has been fully explained to me. We don't know what was explained to them. That's so that true. right there is totally up in the air. And they could have said a lot to them. They could have said nothing to them, but they're signing off saying that, yeah, it was explained to me. Yeah, don't so sign then Zimbardo thing- can come back and say, no, I told them very specifically what was going to happen. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. He but probably didn't.
1: It's probably recorded. He's a big fan of just saying the way things were, and then read
3: what you sign
1: always. And don't don't, sign, don't a,
3: sign things if you don't feel comfortable with what you are signing, and don't sign a thing that says
1: we had a verbal agreement. The details that we worked out verbally, it's not written down. No,
3: write it down. <laughs> right? That's all point of it in detail. Have a paper trail.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So let's get
1: into
3: the guards.
1: Wait, well, wait, wait. Th- question. Hmm? When they first interviewed people, they asked them if they wanted to be prisoners or guards, and every one of them said they wanted to be prisoners. None of them said they wanted to be guards. Would you want to be a prisoner or a guard?
3: You know, I was actually thinking about this, and I think... I would probably want to be a prisoner, so I wasn't put in the position where I had to be the, a dick to somebody. I mean, I guess we'll see. The prisoners were also dicks, but it was in a form of like rebellion, uh, rebellion against what was happening to them. I don't know. I do like being in control, though. So it's a toss-up. I think, though, if I was a guard, I would be the guard that was trying to convince everyone, hey – stop abuse this is a stupid experiment why are we getting so into breaks and chill out because these are actually pretty cool people that we're gonna go have a beer with after this and let's not completely break them down yeah they're they're human beings at least i'd like to think i would
1: be that person that's why notice there's none of these there's no women in this because we all would have just revolted against (laughs)
3: Zimbardo. exactly (laughs) Well, while Zimbardo claimed the guards were not given any instructions on how to behave or treat the prisoners, that's not necessarily true. Yeah. In the book, he says oh, he
1: was talking to a news guy and regarding the guards, the the news guy said, did they have any training to be guards? And Zimbardo replied, all we did was give them a brief orientation yesterday.
3: No specific training was given on how to act in their new role as guards. Well, the day before the experiment began, yes, the researchers held an orientation session for applicants that had been selected to play guards. They instructed the guards not to harm the prisoners physically or withhold food or drink, but gave them ideas for how they could make life miserable for the prisoners and demonstrate their authority. Exactly. So they, did ju- they didn't just say, you know what, use your best judgment." In the footage of the study,
1: Zimbardo can be seen talking to the guards. You can create in the prisoners feelings of boredom, a sense of fear to some degree. You can create a notion of arbitrariness that their life is totally controlled by us, by the system, you, me, and they'll have no privacy. We're going to take away their individuality in various ways. In general, what all this leads to is a sense of powerlessness. That is, in this situation, we'll have all the power and they'll have none.
3: In addition, many didn't know that David Jaffe, the grad student that was playing the role of the warden, had conducted this same study a few months earlier in a psych class taught by Zimbardo. His experiment only lasted for two days, but Zimbardo was so fascinated by the results that he decided to replicate it on a larger scale. Many of the successful techniques used by the guards in Jaffe's experiment were suggested to the guards now in Zimbardo's experiment. In fact, all the rules and everything were verbatim from Jaffe's uh, mm-hmm. experiment. Once the experiment started, if Jaffe thought a guard was being too lenient with the prisoners, he would pull him aside and tell him he needed to be more dominant and aggressive. So, did the guards really have free will to discover how they would behave in this scenario? Or were they being guided towards the desired results Zimbardo and Jaffe were hoping to achieve?
1: Yeah, that's the problem with this whole experiment because A, they tell them you can leave at any time, supposedly. And then B, you have people who don't have law enforcement training and experience. When you do become a prison guard or a jail guard, you go through lots of training and you do on the job training and you have people. So this is flawed from the beginning It should also be
3: noted that zimbardo was very honest that he had never even stepped foot inside a prison yeah he didn't even know what a prison looked like this is one of those things
1: that on paper it seems like a really cool thing it seems like an effective good study and the more you dig into it the emptier it is yeah
3: guards were also issued uniforms khaki shirt khaki pants a whistle they wore around their neck and a billy club they also wore mirrored sunglasses, so prisoners couldn't see their eyes and read their emotions. A tactic taken directly from the film Cool Hand Luke. You ever seen that movie? I haven't. It's been. a fucking good Paul movie. Newman. Let me just take him. God.
1: I was just quoting Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid yesterday, actually, to my
3: sister. Also have not seen it. God, I what know. is wrong with you? I don't you? know. Everybody
1: that's listening, Cool Hand Luke is a good movie. Watch it if you want. Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid is one of the best written comedy films of all time. William Goldman is a phenomenal screenwriter and it's funny and it's good and it's heart-wrenching and it'll make you cry, but it'll make you laugh. But Cool Hand Luke is famous because he eats a bunch of hard-boiled eggs
3: yes yes i do remember hearing about that famous scene But i watched also young paul newman hot lordy also
1: young paul newman is in butch cassidy and sunday's kid and young robert redford is in that so they are fine Fine.
3: (laughs) they were the i would say ben affleck and matt damon but they're not as hot as they No, uh redford and newman were way hotter than damon and affleck too yeah and damon and affleck Have not aged well. I know. It's such a shame. It really is.
1: 1997, Matt Damon was like...
3: Peak hotness. So hot. Uh, Good Will Hunting. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. Also a very good movie. In total, there were nine guards and three substitutes that were on call 24-7. Shifts were divided into eight hours and at least three guards were on a shift. See, that's why it would be good to be a guard
1: because you still getting, you can go home. You get $94 for eight hours. Those other people get $94 mm-hmm. for 24 hours. You also get to go home and sleep in your own bed. True. So technically and you, what you sh- want poo poo wherever you want. Mm-hmm. So te- wherever you want. That's true, too. So I think technically you make more money as a guard. Oh, yeah. When you average it out
3: to hourly for sure. At first, neither the prisoners nor the guards were sure how to behave and didn't have an issue with each other. However, once the practice of counts was introduced, things began to shift. Counts were conducted at 2.30 a.m. on day one. Prisoners were rudely awoken by the guards, forced to line up in the hall, and recite their prisoner number over and over. This was kind of disturbing to watch. Mm Mm-hmm. Zimbardo said the purpose was to familiarize them with their numbers, but also to allow for the guards to exhort authority. So it's a total power play. They wake these guys up at 2.30. Get out in the hall. Line up. All you can do is I'm going to point at you and you recite your number back to me as fast as you can. If you mess up. We're all starting over, and this would go on for hours. And they would make them say it. Well, you wouldn't say it fast enough. Okay, say mm-hmm. it faster. Okay, now sing it. Okay, well, you didn't sing it high enough. Sing it higher. Okay, we'll start lower and then go higher. It if was one just... person messes up, we're all doing this for another hour. So then they all turn on the, the prisoner, and it creates yes. dissension amongst them. True. And it's just, to me, as a guard, again, like you said, if we were the guard, I would just say – we're supposed to make you say your numbers. I like. I don't care. One of the guards said it was probably the one that was smoking weed when they showed up. <laughs> said he smoked weed all the time, and he had taken a bunch of joints with him, and he would just want to sneak joints to the prisoners because he could just see how miserable they were. Oh, I'm sure that would have been me. <laughs> I would have been trying to sneak them. You're little like, hey, let's go on a there. bathroom break to the roof <laughs> to smoke weed. Yeah. Also, that's where I go to the bathroom. <laughs> The first day passed without much incident as everyone was settling into their new role. However, less than 24 hours later, all hell started to break loose. Yeah, this shit kind of goes down. So fast, too. Pretty quickly. On the morning of the second day, the prisoners ripped off their stocking caps and numbers, pushed their beds against their cell door, and barricaded themselves inside. They then began to taunt and curse at the guards. And this was all because they'd been up all fucking night and doing these counts because the guards
1: were just being assholes. When one of the particular prisoners, and they it's the one that they... Have as the lead kind of prisoner in the movie. They talk about in the Lucifer effect that he was the instigator and the rebellious one, and he's the one that sort of looks at all of the other guys and says, oh, "They can't do anything to us. They can't beat us. They're gonna it's have to let experiment. us out. It's just an experiment. Let's let's revolt. Let's, let's start a let's revolution. Fuck with them. And it's kind of funny, and they're kind of laughing and giggling,
3: and then and then. <laughs> When the guards working the morning shift arrived, they were quick to blame the night shift for the chaos, accusing them of being too lenient with the prisoners. The night shift agreed to stay on and help the morning shift regain control of the situation, and to increase their chances for success, they even called in all three substitute guards. Using a fire extinguisher, the guards shot freezing cold carbon dioxide at the cell, forcing the prisoners away from the door. The guards then broke into the cells, stripped the prisoners naked, removed their beds, and put the ringleaders of the rebellion in the hole. Well, it was funny because there is a
1: a university committee on human subjects that had certain requirements for scientific and psychological experiments at the school using human subjects. And they mandated that there be enough fire extinguishers around. Oh,
3: well, they came in handy for this. (laughs) It was those very fire extinguishers that were blasted in their faces. The hole was a small closet across from the cells that the guards used for solitary confinement. While prisoners could stand up in it, it was still very confining at two feet wide and two feet deep. Itty bitty. That's such a small. That's so small. And it makes very me sick. dark and isolating. Oh, one would. I mean, it. it was designed to make you crazy sick and crazy. Yes. Also, it should be mentioned. Well, who's to say if Zimbardo and them told them, hey, and you should create a solitary confinement thing for these guys to go into but they also could have just seen this closet and said you know what put them in the closet this is a good uh, form of punishment let's just throw them in here the prisoners that weren't in the hole were harassed and intimidated by the guards and forced to do countless push-ups often with the weight of a guard's boot or a fellow prisoner that had been forced to sit on them on their back. You'd have to beat me with a billy club. I can't do one push-up, much no. less now. Push-ups
1: the, are real hard for me. <laughs> my body has been smashed by a motorcycle, but even
3: before that. I can't do one. Push was up not now. in top shape. The guards quickly realized that it wasn't feasible for all nine of them to remain on duty at all times. So it was decided they would start using psychological tactics to maintain authority and control. Thus the idea of the privilege cell was born in order to break up the solidarity among the prisoners.
1: Well, I mean, you know, you gotta, you gotta do positive
3: reinforcement as well as negative reinforcement. The, what is it? The compliment sandwich? That's right. Where you say something someone can, a compliment about someone, something they can work on, followed by another compliment about them. So you just exactly. kind of squeeze in that squeeze thing that you're really that trying to get them to there. change. Yes.
4: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
3: The guards set up a cell with special privileges for the three prisoners that were least involved in the rebellion. They were allowed to have their uniforms and beds back, wash up and brush their teeth. And they were also given special food that the guards forced them to eat in front of the other prisoners who had now lost the privilege to eat. That's pretty big to take away somebody's right to eat food.
1: Well, and also they said that they had the, there was one prisoner who was sort of obedient, and the other prisoners kind of turned on him and started calling him Sarge because he basically would just sort
3: of follow along. It's interesting how, again, on either side, if you're not conforming with the group, you are considered an outsider. Yep. Law Survivor, you're going to be voted off. I'm telling you right now, everything Survivor's is the greatest social experiment the world has ever seen. So should be
1: studying Survivor instead. I mean,
3: for real, it's it's um, all it is is psychology. After a day and a half, the guards decided to try and create animosity and confusion among prisoners by putting some of the good prisoners in the bad cell and some of the bad prisoners in the privileged cell. Well, okay, that's mass chaos. Paranoia set in, and the prisoners believed there were informants among them, and that the guards were rewarding them for ratting the other ones out. The prisoners became distrustful of each other, which took the heat off the guards, giving the guards exactly what they wanted. There you go. Mm -hmm. Creating dissent among the ranks. The prisoners' rebellion caused the guards to become more solidified, and they increased their control, surveillance, and aggression. Let's just rewind. When we're saying prisoners and guards, these are college kids. <laughs> these are not real prisoners and guards. These are 20 to 24-year-old, just males, very well-educated males that have signed up to make $15 a day in a psychology experiment. Yes. And- but their their perception of reality has become So blurred at this point that they fully believe that they are prisoners and guards in this scenario. fully adapted. Yes. They began to control everything the prisoners did, and everything became a privilege, even going to the bathroom. Sometimes they wouldn't even let them go to the toilet and force them to urinate and defecate in a bucket in their cell and wouldn't allow them to empty it for days. I quit the experiment. (laughs) Well, too bad. Because do you have a psychiatric or medical problem? Because your ass isn't getting out. (laughs) I quit the experiment. Let me out. Mm -hmm. Less than 36 hours in, Douglas Corpy, prisoner number 8612, began suffering from emotional disturbance, disorganized thinking, uncontrollable crying, and rage. Zimbardo and his team claimed they were already so taken over by the experiment that they were thinking like cops and believed 8612 was trying to con them into releasing him early. It wasn't until he began to scream, curse, and rage out of control that they finally believed him and let him go home. This is a good move. This is the move I would make. Yeah. Oh, 100%. While Corby's behavior seemed scary and believable, he later claimed that it was all an act. My question is, was Corby really freaking out and
1: didn't want to look like a bitch, so then afterwards he says he was acting, or Mm -hmm. did he outsmart them and really was acting, and he pulled the wool over what Dr. Zimbardo frequently refers to as the most elite psychological program in the United States at Stanford University, and he tricked all those dummies into letting him out. I think it was probably a little bit of both. He was probably freaking out and thought, the only way I'm going to get out is if I, I've I got to sell this. But I haven't really you ever been it.
3: in a situation where maybe you start to tell a little lie, but then the more passionate and heated you get about it, you kind of forget that it's you're making something up and you're just like, I'm selling this. That's true. Maybe I I frequently think when I'm in an airplane stuck on the
1: tarmac that I may have to just throw a fit and just, I have fake, thought about that too, make a medical emergency to
3: just get back to the gate. There's been so many stories of people traveling with infants and something horrible has happened with the infant and they're trying to get off the tarmac and they're like, sorry, ma'am, you got to sit down. I'll be goddamned if somebody's going to tell me I'm not getting <laughs> off a plane. Or something to have I would risk myself getting thrown in jail you because pull I say I've got a bomb or something. No, you got to pull the inflatable slide. Put
1: Ella on your lap. Slide <laughs> down the slide. Yeah. First of all, she's having a great time. You're having a great time. <laughs> Works out for everyone.
3: $10,000 fine. Maybe some jail time. It's okay, but you got off the plane. Uh, yep, which is all that really matters. Corpy, now a forensic psychologist himself, said he exaggerated his distress in order to be released from the experiment early. In the article, The Lifespan of a Lie, by Ben Bloom, Corpy says that he was afraid, but not for the assumed reasons. Rather, he was worried about failing grad school. He had only participated in the study because he thought he would be able to sit around and study for the GREs. But after the guards repeatedly denied his request for his books, he decided he'd had enough. I will say that article, The Lifespan of a Lie, is fantastic. A very, very good article. It's
1: very well re- researched. And additionally, it has hi- hot well links. too. It's very well written, too. But yeah, it has hot links within it. So it'll refer to something from the actual experiment and you click it and it takes you mm-hmm. to the, the like a scan of the, the
3: consent form yes. or something like that, for instance. In regards to the realism of the experiment... Corpy did admit that it promoted everything a regular prison promotes. The guard role promoted sadism. The prisoner role promoted confusion and shame. He also said the most frightening part was being told that he did not have the power to leave. Other prisoners claim they were told this as well. Zimbardo denied this, but newly released documents of a taped conversation between him and his staff say otherwise. Zimbardo can be heard saying... There are only two conditions under which you can leave, medical help or psychiatric. Zimbardo has also claimed that in the release form the prisoners signed, there was a specific clause that said if they wanted to be released early, they had to say the exact phrase. I quit the experiment. According to Zimbardo, none of the men that wanted to leave ever said these exact words. Interestingly, that phrase is nowhere to be found in the form the prisoners signed.
1: Yeah, the form says you can leave for medical or psychiatric reasons, or for any other reason deemed appropriate by Doctor Zimbardo. Does
3: not say, but you have this. to. You have a safe phrase. There's the magic uttered. There's the magic word. Corpy says the biggest regret of his life is not suing Zimbardo for false imprisonment. So that's a huge question on Mm -hmm. whether, and frankly,
1: halfway through, they decide there's some issues with the location. And they thought, well, maybe we can take it to the old county jail. And the city manager said, hell to the no, Mm -hmm. we don't want to get sued for false imprisonment. And Zimbardo said, that's impossible. Lawyers weigh in on both sides. And this was in California. So in order to criminally falsely imprison someone, The prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you intentionally and unlawfully restrained, detained or confined a person. Check. And your act made the person stay or go somewhere against his will. Check. So the question was, is consent a defense to false imprisonment? And normally it is if it's informed consent. But I would argue here that this is not informed consent.
3: And again, because of the vagueness of the wording on the consent form, it's kind of hard. Like, would that stand up in a court of law?
1: Yeah. Well, and that's the question. If someone says, I don't want to do this, I want to leave. And then they lock you up and they don't let you leave. That's pretty much consent. That that's, seems
3: pretty cut and dry.
1: Yeah. it's And so you can also consent to submission of liberty can generally be withdrawn at any time and anything further after you've withdrawn your consent. Is then false imprisonment. So if you say, yep, I'm cool. It's Young Frankenstein style. No matter what I say, don't let me out. (laughs) And they lock him up. Let me out, you Uh, son of a bitch. Such a great movie. Then then if you don't let Dr. Frankenstein (laughs) out from behind the bookcase after he's withdrawn his consent to be behind the bookcase, you're falsely imprisoning him.
3: Same with any type of sexual situation. That is true, too. Just because a woman says, I'm good with this, if half or a man. If halfway through, they say, never mind, I'm not, that means you stop. On termination of consent, it ceases to be effective. Mm -hmm. That's in the restatement second of torts. Well, on day three, a mock visitation was scheduled for family and friends. Concerned that parents would demand their sons be removed from the experiment if they saw... Like a reasonable (laughs) parent. If they saw the condition of the prison, Zimbardo and his team made it look much nicer than the daily life of the prison really was. Prisoners were ordered to clean and polish their cells. Music was played over the intercom. And an attractive Stanford cheerleader was set up to greet the visitors. This is a trap. Even this part of the experiment was being manipulated and controlled, and the families became subjects in the study.
1: And there's more ethical questions of these families didn't agree to be subjects. They didn't agree to be a part of this, you know. Exactly. And now you're... Basically, filming them and writing down their actions and, and behavior against the, their will,
3: their honest reaction and feelings toward it have been tainted. tainted because they're not seeing what's actually happening. The truth, yeah, yeah. Some parents were concerned about their son's appearance and brought this up to Zimbardo. Zimbardo responded by challenging them and placing the blame on them, so they would feel responsible. When one father aired his concerns, Zimbardo asked him, Don't you think your boy can handle this? Is he a huge pussy or what? <laughs> that last part I'm sorry. might not have been what <laughs> he said. Maybe. Defen- I mean, it seems like something he yeah. would say. He was pretty manipulative. Defensive, the father
1: replied, Of course he
3: can. He's a real tough kid. A leader. And they had... And he told his wife they had wasted enough of the doctor's time and left. We're leaving, Sheila. Don't mace this. Look at him. He invented the Church of Satan. Look at his beard. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> he was on that wonderful animated Disney movie,
1: Aladdin. He's, he's the freaking, what is what is Jafar, the consultant to the king?
3: Oh, man. Yeah, I think that's he's what it like was. like a grand vizier yeah, or something. Yeah, yes, that's what it was. He's the consultant to the freaking sultan. We got to get out of here. Let him do his experiment. Even the parents' reality had been affected, and they somehow felt the need to prove that their sons were good prisoners, and if they weren't, it reflected poorly on them. Okay, that's some intense
1: parenting. hmm you have to be good at everything, Johnny, even being a prisoner. If they ask you to defecate in a bucket, you defecate in that bucket, straight into it. Well,
3: Zimbardo made them feel that they had failed as parents because their sons were be- were failing at being tough enough to withstand the circumstances. You've raised a
1: bunch of weak boys. He was gaslighting them. He
3: was. They heard a rumor that Douglas Corpy, the prisoner that had been released previously, was going to come back with his friends and free the remaining inmates. I kind of dig that Corpy guy. (laughs) In panic mode, Zimbardo and the guards disassembled the prison, chained all the prisoners together and put bags over their heads, and moved them to a storage room on a different floor of the building. Zimbardo posted up in the basement, waiting for Corpy to arrive. The plan was to tell him that the experiment had been terminated. Hours went by, and no one came to bust out the remaining prisoners. The thing is, is
1: Dr. Zimbardo is a doctor at Stanford. He's 38. He's an adult. He's
3: acting like a fucking nut. He's so ingrained in this experiment, Heather, that he's lost all sense of himself. Is that
1: what it is? Or is it a man so stubborn not to be proven wrong that he's willing to go to whatever
3: lengths to prove himself right? Again... Both sides, very valid. Great, great question. The guards became even angrier over the inconvenience they had been caused and escalated their level of harassment, forcing the prisoners to clean out the toilets with their bare hands. I went out of the experiment. <laughs> do countless push ups and jumping jacks. Definitely out of the experiment. And would have the counts last for hours at a time. I feel like you would really start to lose it. Yeah, I think that's what they were hoping for. Some prisoners were forced to be naked as a method of degradation. Here's the thing. If I'm forced to be naked, you guys are welcome.
1: <laughs> Just walking around, letting it fly. All of a sudden, the mood
3: lifts. <laughs> Everyone's like, this ain't so bad. I'm good. I'm good. They're like, oh, damn. Look at that. <laughs> All right. Several guards became increasingly cruel as the experiment continued and even forced the prisoners to simulate sexual acts with each other. Experimenters reported that approximately one-third of the guards exhibited genuine, sadistic tendencies. Yeah, this is
1: in the film and on video that they make them kind of bend over and, like, fake hump Mm -hmm. each other. It's awful.
3: Yeah. And they did it. They did it. At no point. Because at this point, they have lost their... Their sense of like reality. this is just an experiment. I can leave if I want to. Also, they're being told, "No, you really can't leave," and they honestly believe these guards have complete authority over them. Well, and what
1: happened was early on, someone went up to ask to, you know, to talk about leaving, and they said no, and he didn't press the issue and went downstairs and told the other prisoners, "I asked to leave," and they said no, and that sort of lost hope for everybody. Yeah,
3: but again. It's just that perception. And this is something that I think about a lot and that is very prevalent in this experiment. But our perception is our reality. It doesn't matter if you feel offended by somebody. It doesn't matter if that person intentionally tried to offend you or if they even really did offend you. If your perception is they offended you, that is your reality. Yes. So I mean, that's it. It goes for both the guards and the prisoners that their perception of the situation has become their reality. Absolutely. One of the guards, Dave Eshelman, nicknamed John Wayne by his fellow guards for his Southern accent and inventive cruelty, was by far the meanest of the guards and naturally took on the leadership role. He's the one that's in the movie that walks around with the Southern he accent. He is a fantastic actor. Also looks exactly like my friend tim yeager and it was very hard for me to watch this without just thinking in fact i even i am debated because i was tim as an actor and i was convinced that maybe it was tim it is not but he's a very good actor Oh yeah he's
1: great and the whole character you kind of like him because he's charming mm-hmm. and then he's just sadistic mm,
3: oh yes he later admitted that he was also just putting on a show to earn his daily wage and give the guards what they wanted he claimed that even his accent was fake and his entire character was based on the prison guard in Cool Hand Luke. Which he does a pretty good impersonation of if you watch it. I'll have to see this movie now. Yeah, definitely. you do. <laughs> compare him. He also admitted that he felt guilty about the way he treated the prisoners and that he drew heavily on his own experiment from being hazed in his fraternity. Oh, good. I'm glad you're encouraging and, and passing on the horrible treatment you received. Also, fraternity hazing. Come on now. I mean, this was in the 70s, so of course. It was but probably pretty intense. Yeah. If Animal House is accurate at all. Which I'm pretty sure is just a documentary. <laughs> According to Eshelman, Zimbardo loved his commitment to the role and even singled him out after the experiment ended to thank him, which made him feel like he had actually accomplished something by helping in the understanding of human nature. He also
1: said he was the lead in his school play, so he thought he was quite a good actor. Now he's a mortgage broker.
3: Well, there you go. He's come full circle. Yeah. In 2001, psychologists Alec Haslam and Stephen Riker attempted a replication of the Stanford prison experiment in Great Britain. Their research found that in order for people to feel comfortable committing heinous acts, they must have a leader assuring them that they are acting in the service of, quote, a higher moral cause with which they identify. Hmm. In this case, prison reform. Zimbardo would have you believe that the abuse the guards inflicted upon the prisoners arose organically due to the power associated with their roles. However, Haslam and Riker argue that the guards' aggressive abusive behavior came about from Jaffe and Zimbardo suggesting and encouraging it both before and during the experiment. Yeah, they would tell the guards, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. I mean, it wasn't... And even suggest, well, you know... You could probably do a little bit more to get control back of those guys. Why don't you go see... Get back in there and try again. So you feel like your boss is telling you you're not doing a good job.
1: And that Eshelman dude was doing a good job and oh, going overboard, arguably. He was the one,
3: at least in the movie. Very overboard. Most people have said that the movie is just accurate based on the... It's a very good movie. And if you watch the film, and it's called The Stanford Prison Experiments. I believe it's still on Netflix. But it looks exactly like the prison that was simulated too. They com-
1: and they completely replicated it. And there's some parts that are verbatim from listening to the Lucifer effect and how it happened. And then also reading transcripts that are on the website that are available on the prison experiment website. I think it's presentexp.org, mm-hmm. but we'll put it in the show notes and the movie is
3: very accurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They changed the names obviously, so they wouldn't get sued over the next two days. A priest was brought in to evaluate how realistic the prison was. The priest interviewed the prisoners individually, and it was noted that half of them introduced themselves by their numbers. One of them also signed a letter to his girlfriend just with his number. Yeah, they've lost all sense of self at this point. He also told them that the only way to get out of the prison was with the help of a lawyer and offered to call one for them. Most of the prisoners accepted Prisoner 819 was the only one that refused to speak to the priest, instead saying that he was sick and wanted to speak with a doctor. Zimbardo spoke with the prisoner, who began to break down and sob uncontrollably. It was clear the toll prison life had taken on him, and Zimbardo told him that he was released from the experiment. While Zimbardo was speaking to him, one of the guards lined up the other prisoners outside of the room and had them chant... Prisoner
1: 819 is a bad prisoner. Because of what Prisoner 819 did, my cell is a mess, Mr. Correctional
3: Officer. 819 broke down even further and through tears told Zimbardo that he wanted to go back and prove to them that he wasn't a bad prisoner. This is really sad in the movie because he's in the room with them and he can hear them and he's just saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not,
1: no, I'm not, I'm not a bad guy, I'm not a bad prisoner. And they are all in unison chanting Exactly
3: that just over and over and over.
1: And we didn't mention that as part of the rules, they had to end each sentence with Mr. Correctional Officer yes. or regarding the warden, Mr. Chief Correctional Officer, or they would get yelled at and have to do stuff over again.
3: Zimbardo finally said, listen,
1: you were not number 819. You were Stewart, And my name is Dr. Zimbardo. I am a psychologist, not a prison superintendent. And this is not a real
3: prison. Immediately. The spell was broken. Stuart stopped crying and calmly said he was ready to leave. That's so weird. It's it's fascinating. All it takes is one is the person that you see as the leader of authority telling you it's okay. You don't have to feel like this any longer. Well it's and interesting. It's like,
1: boom. Yeah, in the the Lucifer effect in the beginning, he goes through and he's talking about we really only know ourselves and our loved ones in the context of safe social norms and that's not really necessarily the whole picture of who we are that we don't really know how we will act outside of the rules and the laws that are applied to us on a daily basis. So, the question is, the person that you're in a relationship with, or a parent, or a child, or a f- best friend, you only know them in certain normalistic, the confines of certain normal behaviors and normal, um, you know, societal confines. And so when the shit goes down and you don't know what time it is and you're not allowed to wear underwear and you're living in a dress, are you going to be the one that? Starts the rebellion? Are you going to be the one that breaks down and cries? Are you going to be the one that follows rules and falls in line? Are you going to be the guard that says, no, I'm not going to do that to them? I don't care if you pay me 8 $15 a day. Or are you going to be the guard that really kind of likes it, mm-hmm. that takes on the role and kind of gets into it?
2: no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
3: See website for details. Shortly after the prisoners met with the priest, they also met with the parole board, a group made up of departmental secretaries and grad students. The board asked the prisoners if they would forfeit the money they had made up until that point in order to be paroled. Almost all of them said yes, even though they supposedly could have just quit on their own accord. Once again, this showed Zimbardo that the prisoners felt they had absolutely no free will and were at the complete mercy of the guards. They had him hit rock bottom. On August 20th, 1971, just six days after the experiment began, Zimbardo made the decision to shut it down. He claimed the situation had clearly got out of hand and the line between make-believe and reality had become too blurred. Christina Moslock a graduate student Zimbardo was dating and later married, also played a major role in the termination of the study. Maslach had stepped by the prison to conduct some interviews when she saw the prisoners being taken to the bathroom, chained together, and with paper bags over their heads. She vehemently objected to the conditions of the prison and how these young men were being treated. According to Zimbardo, Of the more than 50 people who had observed the experiment, Moslach was the only one who questioned its morality. Well, and he
1: also had a San Quentin parolee named Carlo Prescott who was in as a consultant. Yes, And it's also in the movie. And that was one. He also quit
3: the experiment. He came in to be the parole board, the fake parole board. He also helped give them idea, ideas of this is what happened to me when I was serving 17 years. This is what the guards did to me. And to they demoralize. used those ideas. Yeah. And he helped them set up the look of the prison too.
1: Absolutely. And he said, we wanted to figure out a way to make the guards behave most po- most like the guards. But he said that eventually he was sitting in front of the parole, quote unquote, parole board, acting as the one of the parole officers and was grilling these students and making them cry and breaking them down. And he gets up to leave and Zimbardo says, why are you leaving? And Prescott says, I just became everything I always hated about the prison system.
3: And I kind of liked it. And I don't like that about myself. So I'm leaving. While the morality and validity of the Stanford Prison Experiment has been called into question by many, it continues to be taught in college psych classes around the globe and is one of the most groundbreaking studies to date. For many, one of the major appeals of the experiment is that it says we cannot always be held accountable for the terrible things we do. It tells us that our actions are determined by circumstance, which makes us feel liberated and absolves us from our sins. This can also be a very dangerous way to believe. In the Lucifer Effect, Zimbardo says that while most people are good most of the time, they can be seduced into participating in ego-alien deeds, and that situations influence how behavior can be dramatically modified. So what are ego alien deeds? So he's saying that it would be thoughts and behaviors and compulsions that are in
1: conflict with your ideal self. So if you say, I'm a good person, I'm a moral and upstanding person, he's saying that in the right situation, you can then turn into John Wayne, the guard that's actually making the prisoners simulate sex acts on each other. That given the right set of circumstances, you would be coerced or strongly suggested into behaving in a way that would go against what you believe to be your ideal self image.
3: So he's saying anybody can change and be something that they don't think they could ever be. And pretty much. And his that's why I kind of have a problem.
1: Well, not kind of, that's why I have a problem with this because he does say that he believes that the current status quo, the current mindset that is an individualistic society, that the person is a sinner and responsible for oneself And these rehabilitation centers or prisons that focus on individual reform are necessarily flawed because, really, you can't separate the person from the situation. I totally agree with that, first of all, because there are certain situations that are – there are certain systemic problems, I think, that contribute to higher numbers of certain races of people or people from certain socioeconomic sectors being in prison. However, that's not – Holy, you know you can't wholly separate free will from the system i mean it can't it's it's i always think of it and it's i guess not super scientific because it's a uh what do you call it? an anecdote it's an anecdotal situation but like my dad grew up with a super physically abusive dad like he was violent and mm-hmm he never laid a hand on us. So it's one of those where someone could say, well, the situation is that I grew up with abusive dad, So then I also hit my kids. Cause that's just what I grew up learning. Or you can say, well, someone, and that's what I think Zimbardo would say is, well, given the situation, he was put in a bad situation where he had an alcoholic father that hit him. So naturally he would go on to hit his own kids. No, not necessarily because you take on that responsibility of yourself and say, I'm going to be different. Sure. So I think it has to be a mixture of both. And I think Zimbardo's, hypothesis is like a super simplified thing and that he really tried to shoehorn these subjects into this idea that, you know, anybody at Abu Ghraib would have just tortured those prisoners. Anybody who put on the Nazi uniform would have done that. Any, you know, he tries to make it sound like we're all these blank slates that can be made puppets by our scenarios that are around us. But I think necessarily you would maybe have to be of a weaker mindset.
3: It is very arrogant. For any doctor to say, this is true all of the time. Yes, I There's agree. There's no way that it can be true all so, the time. You
1: know, he says legal theory should be reevaluated because you know sometimes certain situations should mitigate the culpability of individuals, and I get that, and that's why we have degrees of murder, and that's why we have misdemeanor and felony and grades of certain things because I think your men's the mental capacity or not mental capacity, the mental state you have when you commit a crime definitely should factor in, but also you do have to take personal responsibility because in taking personal responsibility is the only way you empower yourself to then do better.
3: Sure. You can be a product of your environment or you can change things for yourself.
1: And it's easy. You know, everyone's there's let me just talk about Miss Mole for a minute. Who's the greatest Mrs. Mole? Oh, the greatest teacher, the greatest teacher who's ever lived. She told us when we were I remember I think I was in ninth grade. I had her for ninth, tenth and eleventh grade English. And she said, any problem you have is your problem. And we all were like, bullshit, because we're 15 and the world's against us. Nah. Right. And she said, even if you can't change it because there is a systemic problem, you can work towards changing it or try to help work towards changing it. But also, you can always control your own attitude. You sure. can always control your own reaction to something. So I think in saying, oh, well, situational issues can just sort of naturally make anybody, a person with a billy club, in their fellow man – there's also individual. I think you should have
3: an individual sense of self that's strong enough to withstand that. You can play the victim and say, "I had no, I had no other choice but to act this way because I was raised in an abusive." Environment where I had no other choice because they put me in khaki pants and gave me some sunglasses. you always have a choice, yeah, and
1: I think it's just whether if you take the easy choice or the hard choice, and mm-hmm. so i I don't know that's my opinion on this. I think I skipped ahead to what so what do we think? <laughs> 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 but I think that's that's his whole theory is oh the and to be fair, he was the defense witness for one of the Abu Ghraib uh the soldier who abused detainees at Abu Ghraib in Iraq, so he obviously is coming at this from a... Conflict of interest there. Yeah, I mean, he's, his whole thesis is, it's
3: not this dude's fault. And I'm getting paid to say sure. it's not this dude's fault. Please listen to my TED Talk. In a 2017 survey conducted by Francis Cullen, a preeminent criminologist of the last half century, 95% of the criminology papers that have cited the Stanford Prison Experiment over the years have accepted its basic message that prisons are inherently inhumane. While this is certainly true of some prisons, it isn't true of all. Cullen argues that researching what makes some forms of prison management more successful than others is key in determining how to reform both the prisons and prisoners. The biggest moral question this study raises is if given a position of power and the permission to use it against others, would you? Would you succumb to peer pressure and go against your personal ethics to remain part of the group? Would you embrace the role with fervor and do things you didn't think you were capable of doing? Or would you go against the pack, stay true to yourself, and choose what is arguably the moral path? Regardless of what you may think, the reality is, until put in that position... None of us can really know for sure. Well, and he does say in his TED Talk, Dr. Zimbardo does say in his TED Talk that to
1: be the hero, quote unquote, actually does require deviation from the the group. And he cites the subway hero in New York, the man that jumped on the subway platform when a guy fell on the, on the subway yes. tracks. He jumped off the platform, left his kids with somebody else and laid on top of him and let the subway go over him. He talks about that guy said, well... I just did what anybody else would do, and that's not necessarily true because because there were eighty other people. people Yeah, there's eighty or two hundred people. Yeah, there was a bunch of people standing around that just stood there and was like, "Well, we're about to see somebody get hit by a subway today." Nobody
3: jumped on there, so it does. I think people say that because they're um, embarrassed and don't want to be seen as a hero role and and spotlighted because they're. Shy and just want to act humble. Well, and try to, yeah, trying to be humble. I mean,
1: Frances Cullen is not wrong, though. I mean, she says that not all prisons are inhumane. Usually the ones that are state run are more humane because there is more oversight. However, private run prisons are horror movies. They're terrible. The conditions are bad. Sure. There's hugely, hugely systemic problems, including the profiteering on having them uh, in the commissary, profiteering on letting them call their families, the exorbitant costs it costs to call out of the prison. And the question is, should they be profit? No, they should probably be state run. Do we have the resources? I don't know. That's a question. Gets into a whole political issue. You should definitely watch the documentary 13th if you haven't to mention that is. It goes way more in-depth into this. But I think the one thing that the study shows is that, yeah, if you give people power and you have a big brother like Dr. Zimbardo or Jaffe, the bosses, whispering in their ear, you're doing a good job, go out there with the club and take care of business, then I think absolutely that does encourage them and empower them to have this behavior of, well, there's no consequences because the people who really matter are my boss and they're telling me it's okay.
3: And that has tainted your entire study because – You can't tell if they would have organically come to those decisions on their own because you're there whispering telling them what to do. You're sitting there whispering in their ear. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered what we think several times throughout this, several times over. So that's the Stanford prison experiment. We'd love to know what you think about it yeah and it's one of those when we first you first suggested I thought
1: it's not really like a crime or paranormal but I think it dovetails nicely into our question always of can someone be reformed is Ted Kennedy like a nightmare bad man what about all these serial killers we see or you know the Golden State Killer or things like that of was someone made Were they created as an inherent and I think it all sort of dovetails nicely into
3: what we cover definitely well we got some shout outs I'm gonna shout out. Her name is Savannah. Mm-hmm. She is the student of one of my friends. Okay, and apparently, we're pretty cool when it comes to these 15 year old high school girls. If so. you're in, wait, if you're in high school and you think I'm cool, please send me a message on if you if you don't use Instagram,
1: find me and tell me what the new cool platform is. <laughs> <I'm> so <laughs> something cool. we've never heard of. Yeah, it's probably something we haven't heard of.
3: Yes, I told Savannah said, We're famous. I told my friend Sarah, we are not famous and she said, Well, you're famous to a fifteen year old girl and that's honestly the most famous you can get in my world. That's so badass. (laughs) also want to shout out Enoch. He uh, works with my husband and is a big listener. What's up, Enoch? And Jade Smith, the lovely Jade Smith. So talented. She had a lovely conversation with us recently and gave us a lot of ideas to think about. She's also just a very funny, lovely person. And she's an incredibly talented, not only
1: improv comedian, but also sketch writing and performing comedian. She is yes. brilliant. And you can catch her Friday, January 18th at 1030 p.m. in the Cult along. along. Along with me and Christy at
3: Dallas Comedy House. And Saturday, February 2nd at 9 p.m. That is correct. Both shows at Dallas Comedy House. And we'll post them on our website. Tickets are cheaper in advance, so you can purchase them at DallasComedyHouse.com to save a little money versus at the door. And say what's up to us in the bar, and we'll high-five you and give you a sticker. Mm -hmm. Also, at Sally K. Cooper on Instagram, she sent us some very interesting Branch Davidian picks, I would say they're not they're not of the actual Branch Davidian complex, but some branch Davidian related picks, which were very interesting that was and Sally, good luck studying for the bar exam. You got this girl. We got your back. Also, huge shout out to everyone that has submitted us to the BuzzFeed list. If you haven't yet, we would love for you to do so. The link is in our bio on Instagram. You can also email Scott, who is conducting the submissions, at Scott.brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at buzzfeed.com. Just make sure that in the subject line you include the word podcast, because he gets so many, he said. Otherwise, it might just fly right by him. Submissions to that close January 18th, and we would love if we were on that list this year. So the best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure.
1: You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sinisterhood Pod. I tweeted a hot meme today. You should go check it out. And you can <laughs> like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. You can find me on Instagram at Heather vs. The World and on uh,
3: Twitter at MCK vs. The World. I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Sinisterhood.